0: 2 Timothy chapter 3, I thought I'd tell you that now so that you could find it in your Bibles. Did any of you happen to see this week uh, in the paper or to hear on television uh, about the death of a very important person? I have the obituary here, it's called the obituary of common sense, the obituary of common sense. Did you happen to see that in the paper or on the news? Here's what it says, today we mourn the passing of a beloved old friend, common sense who has been with us for many years. No one knows just how old he was since his birth records were long ago lost in bureaucratic red tape. He will be remembered as having cultivated such valuable lessons as knowing when to come in out of the rain, why the early bird gets the worm, Life isn't always fair, and maybe it was my fault. Common sense lived by simple, sound financial policies, such as don't spend more than you can earn, and reliable strategies, such as adults, not children, are in charge. His health began to deteriorate rapidly when well-intentioned but overbearing regulations were set in place. Report of a six-year-old boy, for example, charged with sexual harassment for kissing a classmate. Teens suspended from school for using mouthwash after lunch. And a teacher fired for reprimanding an unruly student only worsened his condition. Common sense lost ground when parents attacked teachers for doing the job that they themselves had failed to do in disciplining their unruly children. Common sense lost the will to live as the churches became businesses and criminals received better treatment than their victims. Common sense took a beating when you couldn't afford to defend yourself from a burglar in your own home and the burglar could sue you for assault. Common sense finally gave up the will to live after a woman failed to realize that a steaming cup of coffee Was actually hot. She spilled a little in her lap and was promptly awarded a huge settlement. Common sense was preceded in death by his parents, truth and trust, and by his wife, discretion, and by his daughter, responsibility, and by his son, reason. He is survived by his five stepbrothers. I know my rights. I want it now. Someone else is to blame. I'm a victim and pay me for doing nothing. Not many attended his funeral because so few realized that he was gone. Can you relate to that? I'm older than most of you, and so I certainly can relate to it. If you have your Bibles open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, I'm doing a short series of studies now. And I say this for those of you who are visiting with us, and I have titled it The Return of Messiah but we've dealt with a lot of different passages in the scripture, I think the job of a pastor is to open up the word of God and not merely to entertain you or to tantalize you or to give you something that's called a good sermon. These words that we have read from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 38, if you still have your Bibles open, I believe this message has a double fulfillment. It has a fulfillment for the disciples. Jesus was talking to his disciples. But it has a fulfillment for us also because we are also the Lord's disciples. The word disciple in the New Testament comes from a word that means to learn or a learner, a new student, a young student. We are all learners of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the way uh, I don't know what happened to the message last Sunday on our website. People have been calling me and asking me about it. perhaps they'll get it back up there today, and maybe we can get this one up a little a little quicker so that's I forgot to mention that earlier today. let's look at this ver these verses again, Matthew chapter ten verse. 28 and 38. And here's what we get. The general lesson in this passage, Matthew 10, 28 to 38, the central message in this passage is that truth divides. Truth divides. The God of the Bible is a God of division. In the beginning... He divided the light from the darkness. Then he divided Noah and his family from the rest of the world by means of an ark. He divided Abraham from the pagans of Ur of the Chaldees, telling him to leave his home, leave his family, leave his land. He divided Israel. From the rest of the nations, and then within Israel, he made a division within the nation of Israel, destroying those who rebelled and saving those who served him. And today, I believe he is calling out a people unto himself, making a division among the populations of the earth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll tell you where these are, and if you care to turn there, you can. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in verses 14 through 18, here's what we have. We have these words that were a little comment on them. What partnership can righteousness have with lawlessness? That is, how can right and wrong be partners? What fellowship can light have with darkness? How can light and darkness live together? What harmony exists between Christ and Belial, an old pagan word for the devil? How can Christ and the devil agree? What do a believer and an unbeliever have in common what agreement can a temple of God make with pagan idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my home with them. I will dwell with them, that is, with my, with my people. And I will walk in them, that is, I will live among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, leave them, separate yourself from them. I'm dividing you from them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, that is, have nothing to do with what is unclean in the eyes of the Lord, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Jesus said, I am the truth. And you may not realize this but everywhere he went he brought division and it tells us right here in the 34th verse of Matthew chapter 10 that he did not come to bring peace on earth the reason people think that he came to bring peace on earth is because of of a bad translation in the Gospels of Matthew and others regarding his birth on earth peace and goodwill to men A better translation would be on earth peace and favor with those who are looking to him, who are trusting in him. There is no favor and peace to those who will not submit themselves unto the Lord and unto his word. Jesus says in the 34th verse, I did not come to bring peace on earth. Luke, in his gospel, in the same rendering, Luke 12:51, has Jesus saying it this way, "Do you suppose that I have come to give peace on earth?" I tell you nay, but rather division. We read in John 7:43 there was a division among the people because of him. We read in John chapter nine and verse 16, there was a division among them, because of Christ. We read in John ten nineteen there was a division again among the Jews for these sayings. And even today, people are divided, still divided over him, who he was, and over his doctrine, what he taught. Because truth divides. Truth is the dividing line between the fear of man and the fear of God. He tells us that right here in Matthew chapter 10. Fear ye not those who can kill the body, but after that they can do nothing. But I will tell you whom whom you shall fear. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Truth divides between the fear of man and the fear of God, the love of this world, and the love of the world to come. That's the 28th verse of Matthew chapter 10. The truth and the lie cannot be reconciled. Truth divides between the doctrines of men and the doctrine of God, what is accepted and taught by men, what is denied by God, what is taught by God, and what is denied by men. I told you last week that now we've reached a point here where we are celebrating what the Scripture condemns, and we are condemning what the Scripture celebrates, and we are condemning those who will not celebrate with us when we celebrate the condemnation of Scripture. Truth and lies cannot be reconciled. Truth divides between the doctrine of man and the doctrine of God. On earth, truth divides between whether there shall be peace or war, between members of a family Whosoever stands with Christ, he tells us here in verse 33, stands on the side of truth. Whosoever will not stand with Christ stands against him. And all of these conflicts, if you'll notice verse 38, he that takes not his cross and follows after me, all of these conflicts in the family, in the community, at work, in this nation, all of these conflicts are compared to death by crucifixion, to taking up a cross. Jesus said, he that will not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The reason common sense has died is because we make so little of the word of God. Not only the teaching of the Word of God, but the people themselves are not reading the Word of God. They're not meditating on the Word of God. They're not looking at the Word of God. They're not praying over the Word of God. They're coming into the churches for a good time and to be entertained and say to the preacher or the pastor or the teacher, okay, spiritualize me. That's where we are today in America. And I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may have heard of him. He was only 39 years old. He was a pastor in Germany. And he was executed by Hitler. And this is what he said. He said, quote, when a man, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Grace is costly, he says, because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I believe that we are quickly approaching a crossroads in this world. We are about to find out who believes the Lord and who is a professor of faith and who is a confessor of faith, who talks the talk and who walks the walk. Who says that they have counted the cost, but who is not willing to pay the price? Who says that Christ died for them, but they are not willing to die for Christ? Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said this, Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. You are not only responsible for what you say, he said, but also for what you do not say. As we all know, there are times when it's wrong not to speak up. When you don't speak up, you spoke up. When you don't make a decision, you made a decision. The Lord told Moses in Leviticus 19.16 under the law, Be honest and just when you make decisions in legal cases. Do not show favoritism to the poor or fear to the rich. And when someone is on trial for his life, speak out. If your testimony can help him, I am the Lord. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16. Well, let me just translate that a little differently for us. People today, all of the people in this world today who are not saved, who do not know the Lord, who have not come to Christ. Those people, uh, they're in danger. They're in great danger. And we're doing them a disservice if we're not saying something to them, trying to be a witness to them. I'm not talking about going around as somebody that has no sense and uh, talking to everybody and saying something all the time about something. I'm not talking about that. But your very life is a testimony. Your very life is an epistle that men read. Even Paul said that. I know we have failed. I know I have failed many times in this regard. Do you remember Peter? I read about him in John chapter 13 when the Lord told Peter and the other disciples that he was going to shortly be leaving them. This is what Peter said. Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And Peter responded, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And Peter answered and said, Though all men should be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. And Jesus said unto him, I say unto thee, Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And listen to this. Peter said, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise all said all of the disciples. Matthew 26:33 through 35. When Jesus was arrested, they led Jesus first to the house of Annas, the father-in-law of the Jewish high priest of Israel. Then he was taken to the palace or the house of the high priest Caiaphas. This is all in John's Gospel chapter 18. The Bible says in verse 16 that Peter stood at the door outside. And there was somebody there that was a friend of Peter's that knew the high priest. And it says that he talked to the high priest and he came over and opened the door and let Peter in. Peter was admitted inside and he was first spoken to by a young woman who attended the door. This is all John's gospel, chapter 18, this is verse 16. And when Peter was admitted inside, and this young woman turned to him, she said, are you not one of this man's disciples? Peter said, I am not. And then Peter moved over to a fire to warm himself. And while he was standing by the fire, somebody said to him, aren't you one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not, verse 25. You remember that when Jesus was arrested, you remember when they came out to arrest Jesus that Peter pulled out his sword and started swinging wildly and cut off a man's ear? Remember that? And as the providence of God would have it, a man who was a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off was standing there beside Peter, and he recognized him. And he said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied his Lord for the third time. And immediately the rooster crowed. Both Matthew and Luke tell us that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. You know why? Because he saw his own weakness. That's that's how we are. We're weak. We are afraid of the world. We're afraid of offending somebody rather than afraid of offending our Lord who died on a cross and suffered, bled, and died for us. Where the battle rages, said Martin Luther, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. I believe this world is looking for someone who will stand up for something. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. We need to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how often we have hidden ourselves rather than proved our loyalty. Like Peter, we have denied him, if not outright, then by our silence. And I'm sure most of you today who are awake recognize that the battle is growing worse, more intense. As the world becomes more ungodly, it becomes more bold. Now here, I'd like for you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Would you do that? 2 Timothy chapter 3. And what I'm going to do, I have subtitled today's study, The Last Days. The Last Days. I'll probably bring you part two, God willing, next Sunday. But here is a passage that uses that very language the last days. Second Timothy chapter three. Now I'm gonna say this later again, but let me say it now. We have here in this congregation, in this audience today, and I'm sure watching on television, watching on the YouTube, Ustream, Sermon Audio, Video, we have folks that are various and sundry positions regarding the millennium. You have premillennial people. You have postmillennial people. You have millennial. amillennial. Ah, when you put an A in front of something, it negates it. It means no millennium. You have people who think that the Jesus is going to come in two stages. He's going to come to the clouds and people are going to go up and then he's going to come onto the earth. You have all kinds of views regarding eschatological or last things. But I'm not talking about a view of eschatology here. What I'm talking about is what the scripture here calls last days. Now I have told you, and I'm going to tell you several times in these studies so you won't forget it, that the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that the last days began when Christ was born. God who at sundry times and in divers manners, Different times, many different ways, spoken to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. We've been in the last days for over 2,000 years. And as I keep reminding you, the scripture says God is above time. And Peter tries to give us some idea of what that means when he says one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. That doesn't mean that's an exact equivalent of a thousand years at one day. It means God doesn't live in time. There are no sunrises and sunsets for the Lord. There's no coming out of the stars and going down. There's no day and night. He lives above all of that. All of that is in him. He's not in the universe. The universe is in him. So we think in terms of miles and inches and feet and times and hours and days and nights. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. But what is that to an eternal God? So here he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this no, I'm reading of course from the King James Version. You may have a different version. And I've asked them if they would put this up on the screen, each verse at a time, and that way you at least have the same translation that I have. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Talking about the last days here. What exactly, what, where, where exactly in the last days? We don't know. But he says this. He said, you can look for these things in the last days. And when he says, in the last days, this is the beginning of the last period of human history before the return of the Messiah. And he says, perilous times. That's a, a Greek term that means dangerous and difficult times. Dangerous because there'll be rampant lawlessness and difficult because very little can be done about it and it will be difficult to know what should be done. Then he says, for men shall be lovers of themselves. They will be supremely selfish. They will be egotistical. They will be self-centered. Then he says, they will be covetous. And that's a term there that means extremely guilty, greedy rather, extremely greedy, boastful. They will be boastful. They'll be full of praise for themselves, without shame or embarrassment. They'll brag on themselves. You know the Bible says, "Let another's lips praise thee, and not thine own." Then he says that not only will be covetous and boastous. They will be proud. The best way I could translate that is they will be sickingly conceited. I mean, you'll be embarrassed because they're so conceited. Blasphemers, that is, they are unable or un, un, unafraid, I should say, unafraid to insult God, the God who made them, who holds their very breath, next breath in his hands. Blasphemers, unafraid to insult God. The God who made them disobedient to parents, impersuasable, noncompliant, willfully obstinate, disobedience with an attitude is what this word means. Now, I don't care how big you are. You still have a mom and dad. And the scripture says you are to honor your mom and dad as long as they live and as long as you live. You are to honor them. You are to give honor to the scripture says that is the first promise. That is the first commandment with a promise. Find that in Ephesians chapter 6. Disobedient parent, then he says, unthankful. A word that means totally ungrateful, oblivious to all blessings, both human blessings and divine blessings. Unholy. Unholy, that is an interesting word, a very strong word. Anosis is the Greek term there, and it doesn't mean simply a person that's not religious or a person that's irreligious, but it means a person that is positively wicked and hostile toward all things that are holy. That's what unholy means. Then he says, without natural affection. Meaning inhuman, unloving, more like a vicious animal, merciless, don't care. Truce breakers, can't be trusted, don't have any law but themselves. False accusers, diabolos, that's the word from which we get our word devil. Devil. Is the word translated false accuser. One who slanders like the devil. One who has no concern for the truth. And then he says incontinent. Incontinent. That is without self-control. Given over to violence. Fierce. Fierce. Like an untamed animal. Savage. Despises of those that are good. That is, the people will hate the very idea of good and hate those who do good. Traitors, traitors, treacherous, betrayers that can't be believed or trusted. Heady, that's an old English word, heady, reckless, hasty, headstrong, headstrong people. High-minded. That word means to be Satan-like, to be filled with pride. The devil, Lucifer, became the devil and Satan because of pride. His heart was lifted up. He didn't want to be a servant of God. He wanted to be the God of God. That's what men want. Men want to be God over God. I'll tell God what he can do. He's not going to tell me what I can do with my life. This is my life. This is my body. I'll do what I want to do with it. Rather than bowing to the Lord and to his will, we want to be God over God. And, of course, that is exactly what Lucifer, who's also called the serpent, he's called the devil. His name is Lucifer. I say this often. His name is Lucifer. But devil and Satan are descriptive titles. That shows you what his position is. The king over in England, uh, he's called the king. Uh, if when, when his mother was queen, the longest reigning monarch as far as we know in history, at least in the Western world, uh, her queen was her, her title. That's her position. But her name was Elizabeth. And the devil's name is Lucifer, which has to do with light, light bearer. But he became the devil. He became an adversary of God and he became the slanderer, the devil of both God and man. And that is this word that's translated high-minded, to be Satan-like, to be filled with pride and self-conceit. It says lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Well, one of the words translated love in the New Testament is the word phileo. That's the word for love. And here it's joined with another Greek term that has to do with carnal pleasure. So the word is phaledonos. They took phaledonos and they hooked it up with denos. Phaledonos translated pleasure. And it, re- it refers to people who are in love with, pre- with pleasure. Whose very being is to seek pleasure. One who is addicted to pleasure. One whose God is pleasure. Then he says, listen to this now. On top of all of this bad action and attitude. It says verse, I don't have the verse in front of me. There it is on the board up there. Uh, Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. There will be people who will, they will still hold on to the outward forms of religion, of ritual, of rite, of ceremony, but they'll know nothing of his substance. The word translated form is the word morphosis. We've heard metamorphosis. Morphosis is taken from the mythological god of dreams. When you dream, it seems real, but it's only a form of reality. And that's what this, that's this word here that's translated, having a form of godliness. It's not. When you have virtual reality, you don't have reality. <laughs> and when you get away from that computer and you have to walk back out in the world, you're going to find that there it's much different than on the computer when you become God. And when you control everything and shoot everybody and nobody gets you. Form. Morphosis, you're dreaming, and you've got that mistaken for reality. Then he says, from such, turn away. Avoid it. Your are urged to avoid all sorts of things that will dominate the last days. And if we have fallen into them, To run away from those who practice them as quickly as you can. There is a danger of being drawn in by them and drawn to those who practice such things. And we need to run before the chastening hand of God falls upon us. Remember Lot and his family? Remember that the Lord said, He sent those two angels there, and they told Lot. They said, you get yourself and get your wife and get your daughters and get your son-in-laws out of this city because judgment's going to fall on it in the morning. If you're in this city, it's going to fall on you. And so that's that's really what Paul is saying here. He's saying, get away. Get away from this. Get away from people who think like this. Get away from people who seem to be... Uh, moving that way. Then he says in verse, uh, the next verse, he says, I have verse six. I don't know, that's not verse six. "Uh, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with lust, led away with divers' lust. It is verse six. It is verse six. What does that mean? He means that You could be enticed by this as easily as women who are burdened down with sins and guilt, as easily as they are led by false teachers who promise them salvation while they continue to practice their trade. Oh, God loves you. God loves you. What did did Lucifer say to Adam and Eve? What did he say to Eve? Eve. She said, uh, he said, uh, can you eat of all the trees of the garden? Oh, she said, we can eat of all the trees but one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Well, the Lord didn't say anything about touching it. Why would the Lord say you can touch it, you can smell it, you can roll it around your mouth, just don't eat it? Why would he say that? Well, that would be tempting you. And he said, well, what will happen if you, well, if we, if we ate of this fruit, he, uh, he said, uh, we would surely die. What did the devil say? Thou shalt not surely die. Oh, you know, God wouldn't, he wouldn't let you die over eating some fruit off of a tree. What kind of a God is he? He wouldn't do that. He knows that in the day you eat thereof, then you will be like him. And you're determined for yourself. You will stake out your own independence and not be dependent on him to tell you what good and evil is. You decide for yourself what good and evil is. You will determine for yourself what is good and what is evil. And it looks like we've been trying to do that now for thousands of years and we're not doing too well cos now we're to the place where we're calling that what God calls evil good and what God calls light we're calling darkness we're like the man that was sent out into space 10,000 miles and kicked out of the spaceship and then asked which way is up which way is down where's east where's west where's north where's south you see Your point of reference is the earth. When you leave the earth, you don't know what time it is. You don't know what day it is. You don't know what month it is. You don't know what up and down is because your point of reference is the earth. The point of reference for truth and reality is the Bible. It's the word of God. And the more we get away from the Bible, the more we stop defining life and reality in terms of the Bible, the more confused we're going to be. And the more confusing it's going to be. We're going to be like these people who creep into houses. Dealing with silly women laden with sins. And carried away with divers and many different kinds of lust. Then he says, notice verse 7. He says, they will be ever learning. Not only does this mean learning about God. But it means just knowledge. We have knowledge today in this world, unbelievable knowledge. Now we've got AI, artificial, artificial intelligence. And they can, they can take you, when you get a phone call, somebody wants you to just say something, they can take your voice and get about 30 seconds of your voice and then they can make you, make you say anything. I mean, I'm getting where I won't even answer the phone. <laughs> somebody might be there, you know. Ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The last days will be marked by much learning coupled with much wickedness and a form of religion which is totally ignorant of the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. And my friends, if the Lord doesn't help us, we're going to follow in Peter's footsteps. It's the duty of the church to call the world to repent and to seek the Lord. This is what it says in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained and he has given assurance unto all men that he will do this in that he raised him from the dead. And I believe that the modern church is in retreat generally speaking, and I want you to know this, that regardless of what we may be teaching, regardless of how many books and CDs we may be selling, regardless of how extensive our ministries are, if I'm not dealing with the issues confronting my generation, I am in retreat. Here's a saying that's worth repeating. It was attributed at one time to one of the reformers, but it has been researched and may not be his quote at all, but it still is true. It says this, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point where the devil and the world or at that moment, attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. Even the business world is warning us. Listen to this. World War II billionaire Ray Dalio recently said, quote, We are close to a brutal World War III. Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan, said, quote, The attacks on Israel may have far-reaching impacts. This may be the most dangerous time the world has seen in decades, end of quote. And then the Strategic Posture Commission, a congressionally appointed bipartisan panel, just released a report which calls for an immediate expansion in the United States of conventional forces as well as enhancing our nuclear weapons program. The commissions warned, quote, the United States must prepare for possible simultaneous wars with Russia and China. End of quote. Let me read something in closing that I began to read last week. It's titled, Trouble for 2024. First, it says, China versus the USA over Taiwan. It says, China has revealed its intentions of taking over Taiwan even though it has never governed it. China is making nuclear weapons faster than ever thought possible. Number two, concerns about potential nuclear assault by North Korea. Dictator Kim Jong-un has created and tested various ballistic missiles capable of reaching targets in Japan and the U.S. mainland. Number three, the Israel-Hamas war. Once began October of 2023 shows no signs of ending anytime soon. Israel's officials have warned of a prolonged conflict that might extend throughout 2024 and beyond. Prime Minister Netanyahu's goal of completely wiping out Hamas is considered by many analysts as nearly impossible. The influence of Hamas extends beyond Gaza. In the year 2024, the war will probably become far more intense, leading to numerous casualties on both sides. Number four, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which began in February 2022, has been described as, quote, more dangerous than anything Europe has seen since the end of World War II, end of quote. Thousands have been killed on both sides, and the prospect is for thousands more to lose their lives. Mr. Putin, head of Russia, may see the conflict between Israel and Hamas as an opportunity to push his advantage. Russia has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. Last autumn, he withdrew Russia from the global treaty banning new nuclear weapons testing. Weapons, arms, controls, experts are concerned that Putin may be inching toward a nuclear test To evoke fear, Russia has intensified its bombardments of Ukraine. A Russian missile even entered the airspace of NATO member Poland, increasing the risk that the military alliance will be forced to retaliate. Number five, almost certain. Some have predicted that 2024 will see great famine, increasing earthquakes, as is prophesied. Number six, these wars will result in severe economic and geopolitical consequences. The world will be plunged into chaos and conflict with the lives of millions at stake. Number seven, Iran-backed militias and attacks on the U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria may escalate the war in Israel and expand it to involve global conflict ending in World War III. Number eight, in 2024, may see the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church replaced either by death or because of his health. He has had lung and breathing issues. There is no question that the last days of the earth, and I'm not a date setter. I think date setters have done irreparable harm to the cause of Christ. The Bible says we don't know the day nor the hour, but I'm just talking to you about last days. I'm not talking to you about a calendar that shows you when Jesus is coming. There's no question that the last days of earth prior to the second coming of Christ will be marked with war, war marked by war, I should say, pestilence, famine, conflict, confusion, and unbelief. There doesn't seem to be any other reasonable explanation for the events now occurring on earth. I believe that we have now entered the period of a testing for the church, of a testing for Christians, where the genuine and the false will be exposed. Where, when it's, what is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 12, Begins to happen a time of shaking up. God said, I have shaken the earth and I'm going to shake it once more. That those things which cannot be shaken will be exposed, and that those things which can be shaken will fall. That shaking doesn't just mean a shaking of an earthquake. It can mean a social shaking. It can mean a moral shaking. It can mean a spiritual shaking. It can mean the kind of shaking that I'm talking to you about this morning. And so our Lord Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 10 that we need to set our sights on him, keep our eyes on him, looking always to him, because if we are, in fact, entering a more severe time of testing, then we are going to have to put up or shut up. We're going to have to, as they used to say, fish or cut bait. We're going to have to stand for Christ or fall with the world. Now, my friends, I want to leave you on a positive note. The positive note is this. The Christ of the Bible is a sovereign Christ. He's not a little mealy-mouthed, white-handed fellow. He's a man and he's a man's man. Not only that, but as the Son of God and as God the Son, he is able to save all who come unto God by him. He is able to save you, he is able to keep you, he is able to give you the strength that you need and that I need when these times of testing come, when they increase, when they get worse, and they surely will come one way or the other. Some of us may not be here to see it, but the Lord Jesus predicted, and we just read in Second Timothy 3, that in the last days, this is what's going to characterize the general actions and attitudes of people in this world. And when the trumpet of God sounds and the dead in Christ rise and Christ comes down from heaven to judge the earth and to rescue his people, where will we be standing? Where will we be looking? Where is our allegiance? I pray that it will be with our Lord Jesus Christ and I do not exempt myself here. It is difficult today to deal with With the world and the flesh and the devil. There's everything right at fingertips through the internet, through the uh, television, uh, through all of these things. We have everything right there to tempt us, to draw us aside. And I urge you, look to Christ. With all of our weaknesses, he will receive us. With all of our doubts and fears, he will save us. Because after all, He is the Savior. We do not save ourselves. He is the one who saves us. As I often say here, we are saved by works, but not our own, by His works. We're saved by what He did on the cross. Salvation, the salvation of Scripture, and this is very important. I don't have time this morning to, uh, to go on with it. But the salvation of the Scripture is objective. In other words, you're not looking in here... When you look in here, all you see in here is darkness and fear and doubt and weakness and intimidation. But when you look away from yourself and you look to him seated on the throne. By way of the cross, he ascended into heaven and he is seated on the throne of all power. There to make intercession for all who come unto God by him. And when you realize that, when you look away from yourself. Don't be looking at yourself and looking, comparing yourself with somebody else. Paul writes and says those who compare themselves with themselves and with others are not wise. Look away from yourself and look to him. Yes, he was born as a baby, but he's not a baby in a manger now. Yes, he was on the cross, but he's not on the cross now. In three days he came out of the grave, he hung around on the earth for a while, and then he ascended into heaven And in Acts chapter 1, we have the record of why the disciples there were beholding him. He was taken up into heaven. And the angel there said, ye men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which has been taken up from you, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. Trust him. You can't trust anybody else in this world, but you can trust him. I used to say all the time, don't be looking to me because there'll come a time when I will let you down. But if you're looking to me, you ought to be let down. Look to Christ. He alone can save us. He alone can sustain us. He alone can keep us. And he will do so for those who trust him. Let's stand together. We try not to make too much of a situation where we embarrass people. It is very important to take sides with God against yourself. Uh, I, I can get you to repeat a prayer after me and you can repeat it and that doesn't mean a thing. just means you repeated, repeated the prayer. I can say, okay, say after me, I am a millionaire. You say, I am a millionaire. Does that make you a millionaire? No. And for me to tell you to say, I am a sinner, that doesn't make you a sinner in your own eyes. Only God can take good people and make them sinners. Jesus didn't come to save good people. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul said, of whom I am chief. If Paul is the chief, I'm in second place. We are sinners that need a Savior. Ask the Lord to show you your need of Christ. If you say, I don't feel a need, Brother I say, okay, I understand that. But ask the Lord to show you your need. Ask him to deal with your mind and your heart. And if I can help you, I'm, I'm listed in the phone directory. I'll give you a card. I'll be happy to meet with you privately and speak with you and talk to you. But the issue is not how much you know. The issue is who you know. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Commit yourself to him. He will receive you. Come unto me, all you that labor heavy laden. I will give you rest.